0: welcome to humanly the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date evidence-based and clinically relevant information here's your host daniel reuters hello and welcome to the humanly podcast my name is daniel reuters and today i'm joined by associate professor Teresa mitchell patterson thank you so much for coming along Teresa.
1: you're welcome dan
0: really great to have you here before we get started, most people are probably familiar with your work, but for those that don't know you, would you be able to provide a bit of background about what you do?
1: Yes, absolutely. So you know, many years ago, I think I had um, something like chronic fatigue before chronic fatigue was ever even heard of. And I was about 18 years of age living in London went to the doctor who um, decided to give me some Valium because he thought it was all in my head. So I just, uh, I didn't take to that too well. And I decided to visit a natural therapist and and kind of got hooked on it. But I'd like to say that prior to that, my mum was a herbalist. So she would take us out in the fields and we would pick flowering chamomile heads and stinging nettles and go wild crafting for nuts and seeds and all sorts of things. So there was always a background of natural health in my past. Um, So I started off my career as a massage therapist. And uh, surprisingly, in those days, you didn't even learn anatomy and physiology. So that just goes to show how long ago that was. Um, And I wanted to do something that was more integrative, something that would be more long-lasting than massage therapy. So I started off as a herbalist. And from there, I did clinical nutrition, then naturopathy, and then eventually did the Bachelor of Health Science and Masters of Health Science and so on. And uh, currently starting off on my PhD journey. But all along, I have been in clinical practice and I've really enjoyed those years. And I really don't see my position as a natural therapist as a job. I absolutely, there's not one day that goes by that I'm not vitally interested in what I do.
0: And that's really refreshing to hear, Teresa, because some people burn out after being in a profession for a number of years but you've been in the natural therapy space for quite a number of years.
1: Uh, Yes, it's uh, coming up to 30 years. Actually, it's a little bit longer than that, so it's quite some time. But, um, you know, it's evolved over the time. So, you know, it hasn't just been in clinical practice. It's, you know, been in media. It's been in writing. It's been in curriculum development development. For natural therapy so there's lots of varied arms to what i do and uh, i think that's what keeps the interest going
0: and one of those things that you're actually doing is uh, acting as a spokesperson for Bow cancer australia do you mind sort of touching on how you got involved with them and what uh drew you to actually become the spokesperson for yes,
1: yes. So um look I've always been interested in the biochemical pathway of cancer. So just to go right back to my early clinical days, I was fortunate enough to spend three years as an intern with a fellow of Anta at the time. So you can imagine naturopathy in those days was um well we we Thinking it was quite new but it actually wasn't so she'd been a naturopath for about um, 20 years already and those first formative years the first three years as I was studying and being an intern my mentor was practicing in a clinic that saw quite a few cancer patients and, um, and then later my dad got bowel cancer And leading up to his diagnosis, he had chronic ulcerative colitis, which we know is a risk factor. And my sister and I really tried to help my dad with natural therapies. But, you know, at that stage, he was he was a little bit too far gone. And I don't think I really had a firm grasp on the pathophysiology of the disease at the time. So... You know, he did battle through uh, bowel cancer and he lived the last 20 years of his life with an external bag, which is also known as a stoma. Um, This did save his life, um, but he just didn't know how to manage it. So that's been a big driver for me because I do talk to a lot of patients who have had surgery on their bowel and this is a really tricky area to manage in terms of nutrition and sometimes supplements because that bag has got a mind of its own and one of my patients uh, calls her bag haggis and um, (laughs) yeah I know and she writes the most funny stories about it because that bag can overflow. It can burst. It can smell. Um, it can have a tragic amount of trauma around it. So, um, I was I was very interested in that. And then I was asked to go and work in the mining industry, believe it or not, by one of my ex students who was a nurse, and she was at the same time working um, with Bowel Cancer Australia, setting up a nurse advisory uh, service for Bowel Cancer Australia. And when I told her about my history, she approached the CEO at the time and he thought it would be a great idea to have a nutritionist on board. And that's how I managed to start off my um my advocacy for Bowel Cancer Australia.
0: And how long have you been the spokesperson for them now?
1: 10 years now. So it's coming up to my 10th birthday. <laughs> so yeah. that's
0: fantastic. And yeah. I'm sure lots has changed since you first got involved uh, with them. So, in regards to nutrition, what would you say has been the, the biggest? sort of development or what progress have you sort of seen uh, since starting with Bowel Cancer Australia?
1: Well, I think, I, actually, I don't think a lot has changed. You'd like to think it has. Um, I think one of my biggest bugbears is that about 70% of people that come out of bowel surgery don't get dietary advice. and that right. ha- yes, And that hasn't changed. And 90% of those people that are asked about diet and lifestyle advice would really like to have something to walk away with. So I'm not saying everybody, but uh, from the research, it's about 90% of the patients would really want something because it's a tricky area to negotiate. And That's incredible
0: um, that they're not getting... No, national advice.
1: I don't think I don't think it's unusual. I think you will find that I mean it's it, we would think as natural therapists that that would be par for the course. You know you have a chunk of an organ that is involved with the absorption of nutrients, the manufacture of nutrients, the stabilisation of microbiome and the um, ability to defecate without embarrassment. You would imagine that there'd be some kind of program for that, but there isn't. And I also think that, you know, you get similar situations with other diseases, although I don't know the statistics on those.
0: I'm absolutely blown away by that. I would have thought nutrition would be the sort of one of the major or main focuses uh, for someone who's gone through bowel cancer treatment. Do you think that's going to change? Is there anything that you know of?
1: Well, you know, that's why I'm doing a PhD on it basically. That's why I'm heading towards that PhD because eventually, you know, obviously it's going to take time, but eventually what I'd like to highlight through the research is that we really need to be changing policy at point of care for these people because um, it's so traumatic.
0: So the, the PhD that you're starting, or oh, you've, you've recently started that. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, what your research topic is?
1: Yes. So um, most people study <laughs> high fibre and I'm actually studying low fibre. So we, you know, it's counterintuitive, I guess, um, to be eating a low fiber diet when you're experiencing a disease such as cancer, because we know that low fiber diets potentially can be quite high in sugar and so you know and simple carbohydrates. So we tend to steer away from it. But if you are talking about a patient that has had rectal surgery, or has a high-output stoma, which means lots of faecal output, sometimes as much as 30 times a day, um, and or they've had a reversal, then what you need temporarily is a low-fibre diet. And you need to be able to look at that low-fibre diet and make it as healthy as possible, as nutritious as possible, And um, to fit in with a lifestyle, that means some simple swaps and not try to overwhelm a patient that's been A, diagnosed with a potentially lethal disease and B, is struggling with the fact that their appearance has changed.
0: So when you're talking low fiber, are we sort of talking five grams, 10 grams a day?
1: We're talking 10 grams a day. And it varies. So this is really why you need either a dietician or a nutritionist to manage this. So you do need to plug food into a software program. But one of the best places to look, so this is for all the prakis out there, is on the USDA database and or on our Fazan's database in our Nutrients And to look at, uh, just to plug in foods that have fiber, and then you'll come up with a long list of foods that have fiber, starting from the lowest amount of fiber to the highest amount of fiber. And you just go through those lists and um, you put together a list of foods that have got high antioxidant profiles, but are traditionally low in fiber. And sometimes you have to go to, a sort of a clear liquid diet, depending on whether or not not there's a bit of a a flare up of um, stomal or fecal output, and then go back to the 10 grams. And then after that, you slowly progress as time goes on. And as the surgery uh, starts to heal, and the nerves reattach, and we all know that nerves don't heal that well and can take up to two years to actually get to their final resting point. So it can take that long to get back up to a reasonable amount of fibre.
0: And what Sort of, you mentioned like high antioxidant, low fiber foods for people. Uh, things like um, broths and things. Are there any other foods that you typically use? In, in yes. Yeah, so
1: most people think they can't have vegetables, and that's that's not the case. So you know, baby spinach without its stalk is a low fiber diet. It's you know, it's a low fiber um, food, and spinach can go in lots of things has to be the baby spinach because we don't want any stalks. Um, Green beans, most people would think they are high in fibre, but they're not. They're low in fibre. And um, tomatoes that are pureed, that have their skins and seeds removed. Uh, Radishes are low in fibre. Carrots are low in fibre. And then you look at some of the berries. And you may not be able to eat the skins of berries, but you can always... Um, have the pureed berries and um, you know apples as an example. Red apples are, are fantastic for stomal and high output um, bowel conditions. Yogurt, of course, fabulous food. Um, eggs are great. Uh, tofu, scrambled tofu is a fabulous food for stomal patients, and um, and if you eat cheese or. Or cheese, which is the, um, you know, the coconut version of cheese. Then you know, there's lots of foods that you can include in a low fiber diet that's really uh, beneficial. I like to include organ meat, organic organ meat, because of its high nutritional content. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but um, highly beneficial.
0: And how soon after surgery? Are you starting this diet? Is it something that you do straight away? And how long would you get them to do that particular diet for? Uh,
1: That is an unknown. So some people can come straight out of surgery and um, eat a normal diet. I don't hear about those people, Dan, because obviously my, my position is listening to people who are having problems. So I'm sure there's a percentage of people that can just come out and just eat a normal diet and not have any problems at all. Um, Some people can start including fiber after a couple of weeks, some a couple of months, some a couple of years, and some never.
0: Yeah, it's not something that I've actually ever really considered um, going for a really low-fibre diet in the management of bowel cancer because so often we're all discussing the benefits of high-fibre, but I guess that would sort of be more from like a prevention standpoint, wouldn't it?
1: Correct. And, you know, the other thing is you have to remember that with a shortened bowel, um, fibre can get stuck. So the opposite of having high output is a bowel obstruction. So, we use a low fiber diet, and this is where most people get a bit confused. We use a low fiber diet in high output and also in bowel obstruction because it moves through the digestive system without blocking it. Whereas, if you suddenly put in, let's say, two tablespoons of psyllium husk because you think it's a good idea for a bowel cancer patient, you can actually block the bowel and people end up in the hospital.
0: It's a really important consideration, and I'm sure many practitioners listening to this wouldn't actually be aware of that. Well, um, it sits
1: in other areas as well. So it also sits in flare-ups for ulcerative colitis. It sits in flare-ups for Crohn's disease, and um, it sits in the area of um, diarrheal episodes So, you know, there are a number of reasons why we need to, as practitioners, understand the low-fibre diet. It's not a permanent diet, but it's certainly a very good diet to understand for flare-ups and post-surgery.
0: Now, of that 10 grams per day that you were mentioning, people post-surgery would... um... Be eating? Are there any particular f- types of fiber? Does it really matter what the fiber is, or it can yes, constitute it a range of fibers?
1: It does. So, um, and this is getting sorry, but it gets a bit te- not technical, but a bit sort of ooh. um So, if if a person has sticky poo, we call it sticky poo, or the poo doesn't come out properly and go into the bag, this is called pancaking. Um, which can be extremely embarrassing. Um, you have to add fibre, but it's the type of fibre that matters. So if you, if you want to bind all that material together and you want it to come out more like a sausage, which is what we we expect everybody to have a nice sausage poo, um, you need a soluble fibre, mostly a soluble fibre, and uh, resistant starches. So those are the types of the fibre. That you need, not the itchy, scratchy stuff that you find in, you know, the bran. You want the seed that includes the bran plus the mucilaginous component of the seed.
0: Yeah, interesting. Really, really interesting. And for that um, particular fiber, when you're going on on a lower fiber diet, do you modify their water intake accordingly as well?
1: Yes yeah
0: yeah so you know
1: it, it it is interesting how many people don't get enough fluid and because mm. we don't have the capability to recognize when we're dehydrated um well the majority of us don't know and and wouldn't think to look at the color of our urine or don't understand that if you've got you know very Uh, brightly colored or orangey colored urine, then you're definitely dehydrated. If you don't know that, then you can be quite tempted to have, you know, three cups of tea and think that's okay. So, you know, you do need to make sure that people have plenty of fluid with their fiber, of course. And um, I think the other key point there is to make sure that people understand that when you introduce fibre into the diet, it's you've got to go slowly. So when I say slowly, I mean like half a teaspoon of fibre for a couple of days. See how the bowel reacts to it. And then you might go up to one teaspoon for a couple of days until you get to your threshold.
0: And is that something that you've been perfecting in clinic over the the last several years or is is that
1: it certainly is so um and particularly with bowel cancer australia um i um i'm able to talk to people twice a week so i will set them off on that path and then i'll ring them in a couple of days and say how are you going you know is this working for you what else do we need to do um and then monitor that over a couple of weeks. And then once they get to their threshold, they can merrily um, go on their way.
0: And for most of the people that you're seeing with bowel cancer, what's the general age range? Are they older people, younger people, a mix of both?
1: Um, well, it does tend to be more of a, an older person's disease, but, um, you know, it's typically happening in younger people. Sadly, uh, there's been a, a 186% rise in people 24 to 29 years of age with colorectal cancer compared to people born in, in the fifties. And it is also the most common cause of death in people in that age bracket. So in that twenty-four to
0: sorry, twenty-four, say, 24 to, 29. to twenty-nine. It's it's increased hundred and eighty-six percent. Yes. That's incredible yeah. because I've always thought of bowel cancer to be an something older that affects person's older disease. People. Yes. And I, I did see a an article Um, It was published in the uh, Cancer Epidemiology and Biomarkers and Prevention Journal. And what they found was that the incidence of bowel cancer um, has increased by about 10% over the last 20 years, just across the board. But what they actually found was that... um, did increase more in younger people and it had decreased in older people. So I guess the interventions and things that have been focused towards older people for such a, a longer period of time have, are starting to work and now it's starting to affect the younger people. Do you know why we would be seeing such an increase like that?
1: Uh, definitely. So, you know, uh, bowel Cancer Australia has got a, um, a page for younger people and it's called Never Too Young. So I would encourage anybody that um is talking to a patient that has altered bowel motions and, and we can talk about the symptoms later, but you know, if there is altered bowel motions or bleeding or mucus or anything, um that is a red flag and they do need to go and get it diagnosed, you know, colonoscopy. Bit difficult in COVID times, there's a six-month waiting list and there never used to be. So you know this is this is a major problem, but um, so there's been a lot of so yeah six month waiting six time six
0: months to get a colonoscopy correct yes so that's really going to be affecting early intervention then isn't it
1: absolutely it is absolutely it is so there's excuse the pun there's a backup of um, of people waiting so this is not good this is not good certainly um, not. So the thing is, it's the principles that are that were found in older populations, such as smoking, drinking alcohol, uh, less physical activity, less plant-based diets, um, are affecting younger people, and it seems that those over fifty are taking charge of their life in a more appropriate way. So less smoking, less drinking alcohol, more physical activity, more plant based diets. So it's kind of it's going in the reverse. And then on top of that, we've got um, a global rise in obesity driven by, you know, that increased supply of cheap sweet energy dense but low nutrient foods which is without a doubt a risk factor and we know tragically that only five percent of the population so let's flip that for a moment and say 95 percent of the population do not get their recommended amount of fruit and vegetables
0: and that's got to be having
1: it has a detrimental effect so it's not really fiber people think that You know, fruit and vegetables have a lot of fibre. That's not really the case. Um, Fibre really comes in grains and nuts and seeds. But it's more along the the lines of the phytonutrients, the plant chemicals in fruits and vegetables that are protective. So, you know... fruit and vegetable has so many benefits and it's that that we need to be looking at. And, and I jokingly say to people, look, if you're munching away on five serves of vegetables and two serves of fruit a day, it's not really time for anything else, you know? So what a fabulous way to eat, keep everything fresh.
0: Definitely. And um, organic where possible. Do you think?
1: Definitely, definitely organic where possible. Um, and, um, you know, from a genetic perspective, the offspring of, offspring of um, um, obese parents can drive the epigenetic modification um, of cells and, and it's a promoter of altered DNA sequencing. And, and there's something, it, there's a reduced expression of something called ecadherin, which is found in the early expression of bowel cancer. And the other thing is the there was a meta-analysis of uh, gly- glycemic index and glycemic load on the overall uh, link to human colorectal cancer. So, you know, eating all those sweetie things and um, and foods that raise that glycemic load are definitely have an impact and. Um, there's also a role of the gut bacteria in the etiology of the disease as well.
0: So you're saying people with dysbiosis have a much higher possibility
1: risk? for it, yes. Mm. So you, you can actually, and all of the practitioners will know this. You can do, you know, a, a bowel screen and find out what sort of bacteria bacteria are in the bowel itself and you'd be looking out for the bacterioides fragilis um, because that's that it, it can express a toxin which actually targets and cleaves e-cadherin and it's seen more often in stool samples of patients with colorectal cancer and in, and in biopsies close to a polyp when compared to age-matched controls so you know, it's possible that that bacteria is capable of epigenetic modification of the gene and the surrounding tissue. There's lots of other pathogenic microbes, but, you know, suffice to say, we should be looking after our microbiome. And if you're stuffing your face with high glycemic foods and high glycemic load foods and not enough fruit and vegetables, then, you know, your protective factors go out the window.
0: The ECAD um substance that you're talking about is this something that we can actually test for in clinic or is it a more specialized?
1: No, you can't, test? but you test for back the bacterioid fragilis. And right. that's the toxin that, um, it, well, that's the bacteria that expresses a toxin that targets that ECAD e
0: Okay, so you're sort of you're still you t- you're targeting acid- it
1: in a way. You're knowing that it's going to affect it because yes. you'll see that bacteria, and it's quite astounding how many people have it.
0: And is that something that we need to be looking at eliminating from absolutely people's guts if it's positive?
1: Absolutely. So you know, it depends on which microbiome testing kit you go for. Um, But you will find that that one sits in the pathogenic side of bacteria and it is uh, highly advised to do a proper gut detox protocol if it's found.
0: I wanted to ask you why bowel cancer is so deadly because when I was looking at some of the figures, it's actually the, the second most deadly form of cancer only second to lung cancer which i was a little bit surprised about can you explain why that's the case why is it so deadly
1: yeah i think look i think one of the main reasons why it's so deadly is that people ignore it um you know if if you get it early then the survival rates are just amazing um and it you know the the cancer survival rates are something like, you know, if you get it really early in stage one, um, which, and that's a localized colon cancer, um, there's a 90% um, survival rate. So that means that, um, you know, 90%, actually it's more like 96% of patients will still be around after about five years of their initial diagnosis. Um, But people ignore their symptoms and people think to themselves, well, you know, I don't have a family history. Um, Forget that bit, because there are lots of people who have no family history. It doesn't just apply to bowel cancer. It's also breast cancer and a few other cancers. You don't have to have a family history to get a a bowel or, you know, breast or prostate cancer. 70% of bowel cancer patients have no family history. So it can happen to anybody. Hmm. and there aren't very many signs of the disease and then that's another you know problem basically um because unless you've got mucus or blood or alternating bowel motions um you don't really notice it and and it's not associated with pain generally so you know there's a couple of things that uh, i definitely look out for but um you know, if if there's any possibility or there is a family history or a person realises that their diet has not been great, then do a test. I mean, it's not that difficult. You literally, um, if you do a bowel screen test, it's an immune test rather than the faecal blood test because the faecal blood test you have to, you know, scrape around in your poop three times, which is not a lot of fun but the bowel screen test all you have to do is wave a little stick around in the water that you've pooped in and you you pop it on a little test patch and you do that twice and you send it off and and it's a pretty reliable test so you know do a test um so
0: that might be good for younger people who aren't so keen on getting colonoscopies
1: yeah that's yep. that's a good start but um i would say that um you know there's always a slim chance that it won't pick it up the only definite way to know is a colonoscopy
0: right they've actually got to visually inspect the mm-hmm. the colon
1: yeah i mean there is research going on at the moment that is delving much deeper into the various types of bacteria so i I would be thinking in five to ten years we'll be able to do a poop sample that will say you have the bacteria for possibly progressing to bowel cancer. Um, And there's also some research that's going on which I'm involved in from the point of view of advocacy which will test what polyps are cancerous and what polyps pro- possibly will not progress to bowel cancer, so that will cut down the number of screenings. So there's lots going on in this space.
0: Yeah, it's something that's actually affect um, well, not affected me personally, but when I was probably maybe 18, maybe 19. Uh, My best friend actually got diagnosed with bowel cancer, and he was only, he was probably maybe a year older than me. And I remember him telling me that the first symptom that he actually got was blood in his stool. And he completely freaked out and and went to the doctor. And by that stage, it was actually so advanced that they couldn't save him. And he passed away within months of actually having that blood in his stool. So I guess for someone at that age, uh, you know no one's really thinking about the fact that they might have um, bowel cancer. So what we're probably looking at here from a clinical perspective, if we have a, a young patient or even an older patient coming into the clinic, um, if there are no signs or symptoms in many cases uh, of this disease, then it's probably not a bad idea for us as naturopaths, nutritionists, allied healthcare professionals to be specifically questioning whether or not our clients have had any recent investigations to rule out bowel cancer.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I've had a couple of um, very young patients, sort of 17, 18 years of age with alternating bowel problems uh, pain let's say on defecation and you know and and maybe just a little bit of mucus and you know mucus is not mucus is actually a very good first sign because it can be um, an early stage once you get to blood then it's it's pretty much you know there's definitely something untoward going on unless of course it's a hemorrhoid or you know something or abscess But, but, you know, I also have a look at, you know, what's the trend of anemia? Is there most cancers will express, you know, a chronic low iron studies trending downwards, Um, and that can be a predictive along with the symptoms, and that's really with any cancer, increased reticulocyte counts, Um, low TIBC and transferrin possibly low hemoglobin or MCV and MCH low lymphocytes and total white blood cells and also a low serum albumin and if you see that and if blood levels do not change after you've been supplementing and you know improving gastrointestinal function then refer on
0: they're great points, actually, because most clinicians would have access to that information, and they might actually be able to, based on what you've said, now be able to potentially identify something before it becomes advanced. Yeah, so, I've got
1: a book on my desk, Dan, uh, and it's an old one, and you probably know this one. It's the um, the Weatherby, Dickin Weatherby, ND, yes. and Scott Ferguson. Yeah. Now, that is absolutely – every practitioner should have that book on their desk because it gives you tips like that. It tells you what to look for. So, you know, and it's a great book.
0: It is a good text. I am familiar with it, yeah.
1: Mm.
0: Mm. I was going to mention just in relation to all those things you said, probably – Uh, I would say close to a year ago now, I had a low hemoglobin count. I had um, blood in my stool and I was completely freaking out um, because I had anemia and I was thinking that there might be something uh, serious going on. But I did the stool sample testing and I had a colonoscopy and endoscopy and nothing was found, no um, hemorrhoids, polyps, anything in there. So that was a a bit of a relief uh, for me. Do you know why people might get blood in their stool Um, if there is an absence of something like cancer? What else can potentially cause that?
1: Well, you know, I I find it hard to believe that nothing was found um, unless, you know, you had something inflammatory and it miraculously went away because you treated yourself because, you know, blood is a sign of inflammation and or, um, you know, uh, diverticular is a possibility. You can definitely get bleeding from diverticular disease uh, and a flare-up of diverticulitis. I forgot to mention that one. Um, and you can get blood from hemorrhoids, and you can get blood from proctitis. You can get blood from ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. Um, so I I find it hard to believe there was nothing. So, yeah, I just, it's um, an interesting concept. I cannot think of any other reason why... You would just have blood in the bowel and nothing there. That's sounds yeah, was, very strange.
0: It was interesting. Everything's sort of uh, normalized now, which is good. Fantastic. But uh, yeah, I guess for me, uh, it was a bit of a wake up call in regards to you know, taking potentially care what of could your health. Exactly. Really yeah. put a bit of a spanner in the works with. Uh, everything that I was doing and really made me look at my diet and lifestyle a lot more closely. Not that I was eating poorly or anything like that, but it does make you think about uh, what you're putting in your mouth and and what it's doing to your insides.
1: Absolutely.
0: Now, with bowel cancer, the treatments are still really focused around surgery, surgery, Uh, are they doing much chemotherapy or or are they doing radiotherapy for any of those types of Yes, they
1: definitely do. So um, it depends on where the tumour is and and it depends on the size of the tumour. So if you've got a very large tumour lower down in the bowel, then usually radiotherapy is first and possibly chemotherapy. Shrink the tumour and then do the surgery because if you've got, if you have to take out a large tumor, then you know the the surgery is more traumatic, um, and chemotherapy is not. Um, look, there are definitely still using chemotherapy, but not as much as before. So, you know, there are some possibilities that people with, let's say, stage two. Um, and stage one are not having chemotherapy Um, whereas prior to that they might have been so things are definitely changing and they're getting much better at um, surgery
0: in relation to trying to prevent someone actually ever having to get to that stage what things can people do Obviously, a high-fibre diet is beneficial, but are there any other things that people can do to minimise their risk? You did mention staying away from alcohol and cigarettes earlier as well.
1: Yes, so alcohol and cigarettes. Um, Smoking is a risk factor Um, and alcohol is definitely a risk factor. And I have noticed that there have been some advertisements on the TV, you know, talking about the fact that basically you know, during this COVID time, people are drinking a lot of alcohol. And, you know, just to put that into perspective, really women should only have 150 mils um, of, of, of wine, just one. And most people don't do that. And, you know, for, for men it's two. And you are supposed to have a couple of days off a week, Um, because alcohol does change the way that um, the tissue in the colon acts, and it is one of the major factors involved in it. Um, Keeping a healthy weight and particularly lowering central adiposity, so, you know, tummy weight, and where does that come in? Well, we often call that tummy weight um, either the cortisol belt which means you need to look at the stress in your life, um, and or the you know it's a carb belt. So eating too much of the high glycemic foods, etc. Garlic is an excellent anti-pathogenic um, nutrient. So there's some evidence to suggest that eating garlic, just a clove a day, is beneficial. Um, There is no doubt that, you know, when it comes to eating lots of sugar, that will support pathogenic bacteria. Um, And, you know, you do need to look at environmental factors. So persistent organic pollutants, as an example, um, can sort of, you know, make drive, if you like, um, epigenetic changes. Um you can also sort of do a genetic profile as well. So um, some companies in the United States, States do something called nutrigenomics, which tells you what sort of foods to eat for your, your particular gene patterning. And I'm hoping that will take off in Australia uh, fairly quickly. Um, and then, you know, looking at methylation, pathways, uh, because we know about how methylation and folic acid can um, drive certain types of cancers. So definitely be looking at that. Did did that answer the question?
0: It did. It actually did. Okay. And you answered it very well. One thing that was going through my mind as you were listing off some of those things was what about prescription medications, do things like proton pump inhibitors or anti-acid medications or even things like antibiotics, do, do, do you know if there's any evidence out there to suggest that that the use of those medications might increase your risk?
1: Specifically to bowel cancer, I've got to say it's not something I've really looked into, but it's something that in general practice I'm always aware of. So um, a while back, I did a, a podcast on the detrimental effects of proton pump inhib- inhibitors um, and um, and how it affects the gut. And there was one lovely statement by some researcher who said something along the lines of whichever way we tried to cut it, there was no doubt that there was an increased risk of death with proton pump inhib- inhibitors. And uh, don't take my word for that one because it, it is in research and if you want me to find that paper, I will. So without a doubt, it um, it's not something that we should be um, or anybody should be taking long-term. Um, in terms of antibiotics, well, that's a given as far as I'm concerned because if you disrupt the microbiome and you don't, normalise it as best you can, then you lead the way for pathogenic bacteria to occur in the bowel.
0: Right. So this has just opened up a whole potential realm of possibilities here now for patients because you might have patients with, say, chronic recurrent urinary tract infections who are taking repeated rounds of antibiotics for years and years and years. And that could eventually contribute to some sort of disruption in, in the intestinal health and potentially lead to an abnormal growth or something in the in the gut. It's...
1: Yes, and this is where we're really fortunate, though, because we can do the complete microbiome testing these days. So, you know, that would be something I would look at. And, um, you know, in terms of the urinary tract infections, um, actually it's a chapter I wrote in one of um, Maya Hegman's books, Couple of years ago, um, you know, with recurrent urinary tract infections, you've got to look at stabilising the tissue, you know, with your proanthocyanidins, etc. And it's not just about antibiotics, and it's certainly not just about probiotics. It's about getting that boggy tissue to become healthy again.
0: One thing I remember from speaking with a colleague of mine years ago, is that he was really cautious around using glutamine in patients with bowel cancer because he thought that it could potentially feed the cancer and uh, actually speed up the progression of it. Are you aware of any research uh, in regards to that or is glutamine actually a beneficial thing to be using?
1: Uh, there's a yes and there's a no in that question. So, okay. <laughs> so it sounds like I'm sitting on the fence, but I'm not really. If you listen to what I'm about to say, so in a hypercatabolic disease, which is cancer, there's an increased demand for glutamine, but. Levels of glutamine were not found to be low in cancer disease itself. However, if you ask me, do I use it? The answer is yes, but only when patients are in active chemotherapy where you've got hypercatabolic uh, actions from the chemotherapy. And hypercatabolic actions from the disease, so I use the integrative swish and swallow approach um, during therapy, uh, before, during, and after chemotherapy. Um, and if you understand glutamine, it's well known that in times of trauma, the body utilizes higher or than normal rates of glutamine compared to glucose in catabolic conditions like recovery from surgery, burns and sepsis and undernutrition, physical exercise, etc. So glutamine is a potent immune cell boosting amino acid. But if it's not during chemotherapy or chemotherapy has finished, I don't use glutamine.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point there that you're using it during chemo because the research articles that I actually found, mummers in the BMJ and mummers in Nature, they were saying that very much what you're saying here is that glutamine whilst undertaking chemo actually provides um, some pretty potent anti-neoplastic effects and patients seem to have much better outcomes. Uh, it was difficult to actually find anything positive for glutamine when patients weren't using chemo. So there it's a is, really good a, thing to There is a
1: funny little side note to that, um, and I don't mean funny, haha, I mean interesting, um So the re- research says that if you've got normal metabolism and you're healthy, then you know, it, you're most likely going to have the metabolic pathways that um, regulate enzymes of, and, and make glutamine and that they're not disrupted. But in order to be inverted commas healthy, you have to have a balanced thyroid, Balanced growth hormone production, glucocorticoid regulation, and balanced insulin.
0: So, so I'm pausing
1: there because how many people actually fit in that category?
0: Well, I was just going to say.
1: <laughs> just... <laughs> yeah, mm, it's interesting.
0: Which patient can tick all those boxes? Ah,
1: not many. Um, but if you've got, uh, you know, generally a really high-quality protein diet, technically you should have enough glutamine if you're, you know, digesting it um, well. But a bit of a concern for me is the advent of plant protein powder. I'm not a particular fan um, because they've often got low le- le- low leucine and high omega six. And leucine can activate glutamine synthase and, um, you know, it's it's not a, a good thing. So, you know, you really need to make sure that whatever plant protein you've got, you it has to have some decent amount of leucine in it. And high omega-6 is, is not a great thing to do, you know, particularly in cancer.
0: No, and just in relation to the leucine, so you're saying a plant-based protein that has a lot of leucine low, in it? Low leucine. Low. Oh, low leucine. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yes, that makes sense.
1: Mm. And uh, without leucine, then, you know, we don't activate the glutamine synthase and form the glutamine. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, I was yes, during say t- chemo and no is ongoing treatment.
0: Yes, yes, during chemo, no, during ongoing. Yeah, that makes sense. And wh- what dose are you using with your uh, glutamine supplementation in people undergoing chemotherapy?
1: So the glutamine swish that that is um, recommended in integrative um, forums is ten grams of glutamine three times a day. But I don't, I don't find that you need that much. I generally do a gram of glutamine three times a day. And that seems to be really helpful. It reduces the oral mucositis. And um, it also helps with, you know, reducing the peripheral nerve damage and um, protecting the gastrointestinal tract. So I, I generally go for one gram three times a day.
0: Yeah. 10 grams three times a day, it's 30 grams. It's a pretty high dose. It is interesting though. I have seen some recent studies coming out using high dose glutamine for a range of different conditions. And I was thinking, wow, maybe I've been using glutamine wrong all these years because it seems like they're using 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 grams um, every single day for extended periods of time yeah but it's interesting to hear that you're still using the lower end of the dose and still getting really good results
1: yes yeah it's been interesting um and you know mainly because i've had a lot of pushback from clients who've said i can't do 10 grams of that stuff you know it's cost a costing a fortune and b it's pretty awful um and so, you know, we've managed with lower doses and most people are doing well on the lower dose.
0: So you say it's a glutamine swish. So what I'm assuming that means is you're dissolving a glutamine powder, just plain glutamine in some water. Yes. And swishing they're swishing it around that around the mouth. their mouth. And how long would you hold it in the mouth for? Or does that not really matter? About
1: 30 seconds and then swallow it.
0: Okay. Interesting. Good to know. I mean, glutamine is something that I've used for like mucous membrane issues and I have had patients keep it in their mouth for sort of 30 seconds to a minute and it does work quite well. So interesting to hear that you're also using something similar. Yes. Are there any other... Not that you haven't given us so much (laughs) amazing information already, but are there any other like clinical pearls or words of wisdom that you can give to practitioners who might be either interested in this area, might be treating a client at the moment with bowel cancer, or they may be looking to um, expand their clinical knowledge?
1: Yes. So I I think a lot of practitioners will – resonate with what i'm about to say and some of it will be new and some of it won't be but um, no extra iron even if the patient has low iron that's like putting a match to the fire so avoid it even if the iron levels drop to about 80 just don't worry about it it will come back iron will come back um don't don't be tempted to supplement iron Um, just in I'm,
0: regards to that, sorry, Teresa, yeah, sure. you're staying away from iron because it's um, causing oxidation or is there another reason for that?
1: It actually makes cancer cells grow. They love it. They love it. It's like, it's like giving them oxygen to grow and spread. Interesting. So it is better if a patient has sort of a, a low iron count whilst they're going through chemotherapy.
0: That's good to know because there might be people seeing their patient's iron levels decreasing during that time and they might actually think that it's a requirement to supplement with iron Mm. could make things worse.
1: Yeah, there's lots of uh, good research around that and lots of um, integrative knowledge about that um, from the um, nutritional oncology people that have done studies on it in the states so it's something that i didn't know myself and you know would have possibly in the past um you know used iron supplements but certainly i don't anymore and um yeah have a bit of a look at that iron in food not so bad but don't you know there's the old adage and particularly with bowel cancer not more than 500 grams of iron food in a week and certainly don't, um, don't char grill it.
0: Yeah. So no more than 500 grams of say red meat per week, even in someone who's got bowel cancer.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yep. Mm. Fantastic.
1: And, um, so a couple of years ago, I met a very, um, lovely, um, integrative oncologist from New York, And he was talking about vibrational therapies. And um, I can remember at the time thinking, oh, I don't know about this. But um, there's a very good uh, TEDx talk by Joanna McEwan. She's a researcher in vibrational studies in the UK. And she talks about the singing bowls. And he was actually... um, mentioning the singing bowls because they do know that every single cell in our body actually vibrates at a certain level and i think that's why the om if you can om for long enough it's a similar sort of vibrational therapy and laughing is is vibrational as well and it's hard to laugh when you've been diagnosed with something as awful as that but you know there have been cases where people have laughed themselves out of uh, certain diseases The other thing is that um, you can't really go wrong with single nutrients when you're looking at um, treating people when they're going through chemotherapy. When when we're looking at herbs, you have to be very careful because uh, a large percentage of herbs obviously increase the CYP enzyme activity. But you can't go wrong with some zinc and B and Vitamin D and magnesium, etc. And oncologists were, are more likely to say yes to minerals and vitamins, but no to herbs because of their antioxidant type profiles. Um, food as medicine, obviously, you know, grass-fed, organic. Um, get rid of mold. Move out. Mold is, um, you know, definitely something that you want to be moving away from. I talk to patients about getting rid of anything that smells nice except for aromatic oils, um, you know, the phthalates and the cleaning fluids, bleach, terrible stuff. Um, and, um, you know, get genetic profiling done or, you know, get get the profile of the um, cancer tissue and your genes done um, because there's some interesting work around heat shock therapy if you're sensitive to it, and lots of cancer patients are, and they can use infrared treatment. Um, check out methylation and detoxification genetics, um, complete complete microbiome testing, nutrigenomics, which is growing and can't wait for it to get here. Um, and just remember that and this is an important fact. Cancer gets used to the same protocol. So after every round of chemotherapy, it's very smart and it may change its pathways. So it can mutate, take different growth pathways, um, consider pulsing your supplements a couple of weeks on, a couple of weeks off and swapping them around. Um, and retest after the you've been given an all clear because um, you just want to make sure that there aren't any more circulating tumours. Um, and most importantly, <clears throat> treat the whole body with mind, body, spirit. Um, w- much more important than I think we've ever given it credit for. Um, if somebody doesn't want to be on the planet, it won't matter how much uh, supplements you throw at them or how much good food or how much chemotherapy or radiation or any of those sorts of things, um, they won't want to be here.
0: Mm, fantastic advice, Teresa. I have learned so much in the last hour. Awesome. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome. And I hope there's some clinical pearls in there for everybody.
0: Uh, There very much so is. Teresa, before you leave us today, if people are looking to get in contact with you or they are looking to refer um, a client to you, um, where can they find more information or your, your contact details.
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm at the Burke Street Clinic, which is in Surrey Hills, so they can always ring the Burke Street Clinic, which is in Sydney, 0293320400. And um, I can also be contacted through Bowel Cancer Australia Nutritionist which is the website is Australia, all one word, all lowercase.org. dot org.
0: Thank you so much, Teresa. Really appreciate your time. And I look forward to chatting again with you soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.